CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to another edition of Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey and I'm here with my co-host Sheila Warren. The two of us were in Davos uh, this past week. That's the place in Switzerland, the most stupid place in the world to have a giant gathering of of CEOs and people with security problems and everything else. It's really the most impractical thing you could ever try to create. But it is a big uh, institutional experience and has comes in for all sorts of criticisms and experiences and so forth. And we can talk about that. But what we're going to do today, Sheila, of course, is talk about our interview with Michael Sonnenschein, who is the CEO of Grayscale and is in the center of the news right now because of the ETF thing. But before I do that, let's remind everybody that this is Money Reimagined. You can listen to us weekly on the CD Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we, of course, always would love to hear from you. So tell us what you think. Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Sheila, you can tell from my voice, it's a little croaky. This is uh, routinely the case when I come back from Davos. How are you shaping up? Yeah, I mean, you know, jet lag, coming down from altitude, all of the above. But it's always a surprisingly, maybe that's offensive, but I do find it to be a, it's a surprisingly productive week. And it is also something that I do think, for better or for worse, and there's arguments on both sides, it does kind of calibrate and set set the table for some of the conversations that will happen over the course of the year. So we're doing another, you know, we'll do another debrief on kind of Davos more generally and what's happening in Switzerland also, I think. But today we are focused on uh, Grayscale, on the ETF. Uh, and we did sit down with Michael Sonnenschein last week. That was last week. And things have shifted quite a bit since then, uh, both with the price of Bitcoin, which has made some moves, and also with some of these ETF offerings, Michael. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, uh, listeners, you know, the context of the, the conversation we have with him has to be placed in terms of that. I mean, this is the Bitcoin price was I think certainly wasn't quite at its post-approval peak, which got up above forty-nine thousand, but it was, you know, it was hovering around forty-six, forty-five, something like that. Uh, but yeah. after we spoke to him, it it it, it sell off, it sold off, and it sold off because of uh, some redemptions of GBTC shares, which now, of course led Grayscale to sell Bitcoin, which led to this. So those issues do not come up in this interview, but I think it's still uh, a very interesting one to think about how this one important fund, the one fund that really was available to own Bitcoin in that was SEC approved. It was an over-the-counter fund. It was a special trust and it had all sorts of lock-up things. It was not an ETF. Is now going to, uh, what, role, what role it's going to play now that it is an ETF, that it has much more fluid liquidations and everything else. 
Uh, and there's a lot greater competition with all these other ETFs out there. And that's the context of the, of the conversation. So I suppose we should just um, let, the, uh, let the interview roll and we'll come back and chat about it afterwards. Michael Thornton, welcome to Davos. Uh, not that I could possibly, I'm not the mayor of Davos, can't invite <laughs> you here, but, I'm, but we did put on a nice show for you with this backdrop for once. Yes, so, uh, yes, you did. A little thank different you. From, the, from the usual recordings on CoinDesk thank, TV. Thank you, guys. This is, this is beautiful. <laughs> we have a beautiful, clear day. Yeah, it's stunning. Very well. Very well. Worst places <laughs> have conversations from. So, listen, uh, what a week. What an what a, a incredible you know, 14 days it's been. Uh, the, we won't even talk about the, the tweet, uh, but we can at least talk about the approval, that, that big decision. What has, what's it been like and certainly what has been the uptick of uh, the, the GBTC ETF? Yeah, candidly, I don't know that there are enough words to express um, how the last couple of days have felt for me personally, having been on this journey for the last 10 years, certainly for the Grayscale team and probably most importantly for the nearly a million GBTC investors that have been patiently waiting for a spot Bitcoin ETF to be approved, for GBTC to be uplisted. Um, when we got that phone call last week, that the SEC was ready to approve our 19 v 4 and declare our S3 effective. We were ready, right? So, so where did that call come in? When did it come in? Yeah. Uh, I think it was in the afternoon. Okay, the day before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, like, you know, in typical grayscale fashion, there was no panic. Everyone was calm. Everyone knew their um, role. Oh, and, yeah, sure. And all, no, seriously. <laughs> and we had war rooms and tabletop sessions and readiness exercises. We were ready to go. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's really just been a fantastic experience. And then, we actually were fortunate enough to spend the first day of trading for GBTC on NYC Arca on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So, you know, just such a historic building, seeing the trading volume, it completely surpassed our expectations, right? That first day of trading, GBTC did $2.3 billion of notional trading volume. That day, it was the ninth most actively traded ETF in the United States. Oh, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it just you know blew past our expectations. Okay. So this is people moving their. The, the, how did it work? This is converting from their existing GPTC over OTC to the the new ETF. Well, so I actually wouldn't say conversion is the optimal word. It was actually really just an uplisting. Right. So if you were a GBTC shareholder that Wednesday, the last day it was on OTC markets, you just simply woke up Thursday and your shares were instead traded on the New York Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. right? Companies, you know, move exchanges all the time. So investors had no action required of them. There were no consequences um, of the uplisting other than the fact that it was now traded on NYC ARCA and obviously as an ETF. Okay. Obviously, big numbers being thrown around. Some people talk about a $100 billion market that emerged in this. But we had that big run up and the price came down. It's fair to say that it hasn't sort of taken off uh, broadly for, for the broader market necessarily. How do you read that? How do you expect sort of the non-crypto crowd to come into this and as it, as it goes forward? So I think there's two things I'd say there. Number one, I feel like it's too early to make any definitive judgment call on kind of what the earliest days of this are going to look like. We had two days of trading. We then had a holiday weekend, um, just had our third day of trading, right? And so some people have already kind of called for, well, Bitcoin pricing wise, this was already priced in, right? After Grayscale won its lawsuit earlier last summer, Investor optimism took off. That's why you saw this material rise in Bitcoin prices over the back part of 2023. I'm not ready to quite say that it was kind of priced in, but that's certainly a narrative that's out there. The other thing I would say in is kind of the opportunity that we're so excited about is now investors have choice, right? And one of the areas that I think is going to be most interesting for Bitcoin ETFs in the US is really the advised wealth market. It's over $30 trillion of advised wealth in the US. So the fact that those types of assets, those types of allocations need product, need 
things on the shelf at their brokerage firms that are approved that they can actually put their clients into. This now opens up the opportunity to that entire audience. And that's one of the areas of growth that we're really excited about. Okay, a lot of focus on the fees, a mm-hmm. fee war of sorts. I mean, some of the, the other ETFs have come in at very low fees, like 0.2%. You guys are at 0.02, right? So you guys are lower. At, uh, right. some, of the, some of the ETF issuers have just waived like, their fees. Entirely yeah. right, yeah. But you're, you know, I mean, you've come down a bit, but yep. you're still at 1.5, right? Correct. So, I mean, how do you expect to win that battle? So when I think about the landscape of spot Bitcoin ETFs that we have now, leading up to this event, we made a commitment to investors, we'd lower fees, and we delivered on that commitment. We lowered them by 25%, and we are at 150 bips. GBTC coming to market had $28 billion of assets. Uh, it's trading hundreds of millions of dollars a day. Now it's trading billions of dollars a day. Very diversified base of investors, tight spreads. And I think as a result of that, you know, the market and the value that GBTC brings, I think, is really reflected in its price. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at some of the other new issuers, um, you know, they don't have assets. They don't have a base of investors. They don't have a track record of doing this for 10 years the way that we do kind of developing ourselves as a crypto specialist. And so there's an incentive for them to get assets into their products, start getting those track records. And that's great. So that's it's like a liquidity premium, a history premium? In, or it's a- I think that's you know, some of the things you could certainly look at. Fee is definitely going to be an area that investors focus on, sure. but is not the only area. When you, there's lots of products on the market for similar exposures. Fee is one choice. Liquidity, track record, who's the firm behind it? There's a lot of factors that go into it. And um, I think what we're also seeing is for a lot of the firms, they're, they're issuing these products with such low fees or with fee waivers that I'm not sure how much it actually signals their commitment to Bitcoin or to these products, but rather they see the investor demand, they see how large GBTC has become and what the market reception has been to it. And perhaps you know, this allows them to you know, deepen relationships with clients by having something new and something differentiated that they've never been able to start conversations with clients with before. You know, Michael, so as a person and as a company that has been, to your point, very focused on the benefits of this asset class of Bitcoin from the very beginning and has really hewed true to that reality. You know, how does it feel, right? I mean, you're getting a lot of credit, which well-deserved from across the industry, including from crypto detractors about kind of taking on the SEC in this way. And what do you have to say about that? Um, I'm proud. I think proud is like the best word. When I think back to the decision that we had to make to ultimately sue the SEC, I mean, that's the, we're an asset manager. People think we're a crypto company. No, we're an asset manager. First and foremost, and we're a regulated business, and we just happen to specialize in crypto. So thinking back to the decision to sue the regulator who oversees every aspect of our business every day, that was not a decision we took lightly. And then to see these approvals come through, to see some of the the kind of hypotheses that we very publicly made, we said to the SEC very publicly many times, all of these products should be approved at once. They should create a fair playing field and let all these products come to market at once. And that's what happened. Um, and then I think further to see the, the chairman's comments come out uh, on the, the eve of the Bitcoin ETFs being approved, to see so much of the chairman's commentary was rooted in the grayscale court victory. And that was really the linchpin um, that moved the SEC in terms of their decision here. That to me um, was really validating that we took a big risk by suing our regulator and it paid off for our investors, certainly for grayscale. But now I think it's actually paid off for the whole investment community really paved a way for all these other products to come to market. It was really heartening to actually see the approach that you all took in the case and the fact that you weren't trying to create a bespoke, customized ETF offering. You were saying this must be democratized, which of course is the premise of this entire technology. And it's quite refreshing, I must say, 
in light of other actors who are pretty blatantly trying to create a <laughs> moat. And so uh, I do want to give you that credit as Thank well, you. which I think is really important to be said. And, and you know, we're all in this together. We are. So on that note, um, pivoting us a bit, uh, what are other things that are that are keeping you, you know, you're excited about now that this is kind of, I'm not going to say it's behind you, but this fight is certainly behind you. Sure. I know for me, I've spent a lot of this week on the promenade in Davos here talking about intersections of Web3 technologies and AI. Yes. My now uh, slowly going viral hamburger analogy with this idea that we have to stop talking just in silos about these things, the lettuce, the tomatoes, but really it's like full hamburger time. And so I'm curious if AI is on your radar and if so, how? It is. AI, I think, you know, certainly walking the promenade this year, as opposed to other years where you may have seen crypto be front and center on the promenade, it really is, you know, Davos.ai this year, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think with that, some of the things that we've been really excited about when it comes to AI is not just the prevalence of the technology and a lot of the, the use cases that are emerging and how it can propel certain industries and certain businesses and create job growth and all that, but we're also actually focused on some of the issues that AI creates, right? Mm -hmm whether it's deep fakes or bias. And, you know, certainly these are topics to think about and that we know are on people's minds, especially heading into, for instance, the U.S. presidential election this year. Yep. And so with that, I think it's never been clear to us at Grayscale that there is an inextricable tie between AI and crypto. Um, and even when you take an even further step back and you think about Davos, this whole theme of Davos this year is rebuilding trust, That's right. right? That's right. And so when you think about bias and deep fakes and all the issues that are coming out of AI almost as a byproduct. Well, let's look at that intersection between AI and crypto and crypto's underlying blockchain technology to help create trust within AI, to create authenticity and ownership and um, to avoid some of the issues that are coming up, coming up from it. And if we can do that in a thoughtful way, I actually think that AI and crypto can actually grow as technologies cohesively and Absolutely. symbiotically. Absolutely. What does this mean for a financial company? Though? Like, I mean, is this, is this, I mean, one would think that maybe the Ethereum play is a stronger one when it comes to the AI application. So is this something that you see feeding into an, an ETF or you know, how do you how does Grayscale play in that AI? Well, I think we're certainly monitoring developments in some of the protocols that have been developed that are focusing on AI, things like, you know, for instance, BitTensor mm -hmm. and some of the other protocols that are starting to explore that intersection. But let's keep in mind, even though the promenade is you know, rifled with, you know, AI messages. Right. This is, it, it is very early, yes. right? It is yes, very, very, very early. early. And just because we're all maybe looking at, you know, chat GBT and, you know, giving it prompts and things like that, that's great. That's, that's kind of the beginning of that journey, mm -hmm. but it is very early. And I'm excited to kind of see the interplay of this over, over the coming year, for sure. Yeah. It's very interesting, right? Because of the regulators, policymakers, there's all these challenges and there's some think that a policy response is appropriate. The AI Act, not great, you know, kind of cobbled together. Uh, and some of the things it's trying to do in a very complicated manner, well, if only there were a technology that has been <laughs> stress tested over, you know, the past decade. If only. That, if only that could address some of these issues in a very obvious way. So my hope is that we're not going to get policy interventions that preclude the technical solutions, which again, are not complete, but will be at least partial solutions to some of the problems, I think, very real problems and challenges with AI that are already being talked about. 100%. And we bear a responsibility as a major player in our industry to be the bearer of proper and trustworthy information. That's one of the reasons we're at Davos, right? To meet yeah. with policymakers, regulators, heads of businesses. That's one of the reasons why as a US-based asset manager, we spent nearly two months on the Hill in 2023. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think aptly to your point, Sheila, like 
let's hope that regulation um, and policies, you know, don't get in the way, but instead the speed at which these technologies are being adopted are almost like a wake-up call, right? Yes, that that yes. we all need to engage in That's a thoughtful right. and constructive way. And that as there is new legislation, perhaps, that folks engage on it with good, trustworthy information, not just kind of scoff at it because, you know, they're unaware or not familiar enough. So basically, you know, Grayscale has a case it's making for its superiority over these other ones. That it's not necessarily just about fees. You've got this history, you've got this liquidity. But again, you've got you know, if you're going to attract that retail audience, a you know, name like BlackRock, you know, a name like Fidelity, how are you going to compete with that? It's education. Um, it is definitely education. Even just being at Davos this week, I'm, you know, talking to some of the most educated, you know, people in the world that have had tons of experience personally and professionally. There is still not only such a knowledge gap, um, and I think Grayscale as a crypto specialist asset manager can actually be that bridge that actually can fill that gap for the investment community. And that's really what we've always led with. To us, that is going to be the driving force behind getting investors comfortable. They're not going to action investment into things they don't inherently understand or aren't inherently comfortable with. So it has to start with education. This is not just another gold product or another S&P 500 instrument. This is an entirely new asset class. and I think we've never seen a better investor reception, not to mention an environment where investors are eager to learn about it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, our team did an initial wave with the Harris poll and actually looked at voters that are intending to vote in the 2024 presidential election. And some of the outcomes of that are well, actually two important outcomes. One was that over half of those that intend to vote um, believe that crypto Bitcoin is basically the future of, of finance, right? Um, which is a pretty staggering number. And even more staggering is that four in five of the people surveyed that are intending to vote again, believe that as they kind of look ahead into this next presidential election um, and thinking about their candidates being informed on these new technologies, that crypto more than anything needs sound regulatory frameworks around it, right? Yeah. So that's an overwhelming number of people. And that gives us a lot of optimism that we'll get there hopefully in 2024. So there were a couple of nuggets in there that I think in hindsight meant something uh, more maybe than, than they did to us at the time when Michael was talking about how heavily traded uh, the GBTC ETF was, one of the biggest traded on, I think he said NASDAQ, but it was a, a really big uh, trading day when it came out. It turns out, it seems, that a lot of those would have been redemptions, right? People selling the GBTC shares for a variety of reasons. And in fact, you know, just simply, this is the finally a chance for them to li liquidate, one would expect. But in addition to that, the, the FTX uh, estate, uh, Coindesk has uh, reported today, was in fact uh, a major seller of, of GBTC, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the ETF. And so there was a lot of things that happened there that, that were underspinning all of that trading activity, which then led, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Grayscale itself to have to sell Bitcoin or, or at least uh, to, to redeem them. So, so basically, it, there's a lot going on there that unfortunately we didn't capture. It's worth noting that our friends at FTX are yet again part of this latest round of intrigue um, because, of course, the F FTX bankruptcy was a reason. Like they were actually selling off and trying to get, you know, liquidate essentially to get more assets out of this. Now that it's now that it was able to be that was able to be done, and so it's kind of funny how these threads, you know. <laughs> keep resurfacing and the same players kind of keep coming back around. Yeah, it's like, you know, this, this, this ghost that's haunting us almost of FTX. But what did you make of his, his point about the competition? I, I wish Grayscale all the best. I mean, they seriously trailblazed their way into this. And yeah. then, of course, 
you know, took the SEC on, won the case, and essentially, and literally, this was in the the very language that the SEC used to justify its decision: is that it had to abide by the rule of law, and the courts had, had ruled, so it was going to go ahead. That's right, and approve. And so, really, Grayscale had an enormously important role in this. But I just, I don't know. They, got, they had to retain their one point five percent fee, which is which is really steep, right, compared to what all the other ones are doing. Some of them are now literally waiving fees entirely. And you've got big players, massive names, BlackRock, Fidelity. I get Michael's point that there's a going to be a real liquidity value, perhaps, that comes from them being the biggest, which gives them, you know, there's a price advantage. They can be more efficient. And, you know, brand recognition and the stickiness of their existing players. But we've already seen a bunch of those guys sell off. So... I, I don't know. As I said, I wish him well, but it, it strikes me as maybe some wishful thinking. I think this is going to be a tough time for them. I mean, look, there's always the establishment of the concept, and then there's what the market wants, you know, and, and those are sometimes different things. And so to your point, I think massive credit where credit is due for establishing the concept of a spot ETF. And, and you know, look, did, did the court really force the SEC's hand? I mean, you know, opinions vary, but I do think that the market is going to, again, like to your point, the market's going to have to decide which of these offerings is the most attractive and, and that's going to play out how it plays out too. So I, I put out a column last week while I was in Davos just about it because you know, at that point it was the talk of the town. There's so many other issues now out there as always the case in this industry, but at that time we're focusing on it. And, and I, I was just sort of asking the question. I didn't really come down in a position either way, but I, I sort of posed it as a battle for Bitcoin's soul. So it's not just the big fund management firms like Fidelity, BlackRock, Invesco. You've also now got JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, right? These guys are in there as the authorized participants who are actively authorized to buy and uh, sell Bitcoin as, as kind of like market makers to facilitate the redemptions and acquisitions of the, of the ETFs. So you've got these big established institutional players, all heavily regulated, by the Federal Reserve and by other institutions in the US. That is a very different makeup of the kinds of folks who have traditionally been buyers and sellers, owners, hodlers of, of Bitcoin. And so I was just asking in my, in my column, like, okay, does, does this in some way change the ethos? I came down pretty much on neither side on, on the fence, and, and, and I'd sort of be interested to just talk through some of the logic here. But I think one of the reasons why the question needs to be raised is because we learned in 2017 that it's really not just companies and, say, the miners. We often think the miners are this sort of powerful player in the Bitcoin ecosystem, but that the users, those who own, hold, buy, sell, Bitcoin itself really have clout. And that we know that because in 2017, the New York Agreement, there was this plan to increase the block size, and it was vehemently posed by a number of people uh, in, in the broader ecosystem who argue that in doing so, you would end up with a more of a centralization of, um, of Bitcoin because it's going to cost a lot more for people to run nodes to validate. And so a lot of people rejected it. And they formed this boycott group using something known as a UASF, a user-activated soft fork, by essentially just refusing to buy and sell, to own Bitcoin, to trade or transact in any Bitcoin that was going to be using the upgrade that was going to be made to the protocol that would have increased the block size. And it was so effective that the upgrade never got through and the users won. And it was like a, a celebrated as a bit of a win for the little guy, you know, that really the power of the people, we can come together and stop these big companies and these big miners from sort of telling us what to do to our Bitcoin. 
I'm not sure that that you know is entirely that utopian take is entirely true because of course Blockstream, a very well funded VC backed firm, was a huge player in driving that. Was essentially behind a lot of the upgrades and the protocol maintenance that was going on at the time. Anyway, but still an important way to remember that Bitcoin is a complex ecosystem and that users have a place. So what happens when you've now got $100 billion worth of Bitcoin sitting in these ETFs controlled by these big institutions? That's the high end of the, you know, people, a lot of people are saying it's going to run to a market of about $100 billion. If you look at the current market cap of Bitcoin, it's around 900 billion. And if you strip out sort of like maybe 30% of those are dormant coins, you know, you end up with 100 billion out of 600 billion. It's not everything, but it's certainly a sizable at the margins effect on the price, on, on the whole functioning of the system. You know, would, for example, BlackRock, you know, which was at one point a big proponent of ESG, refuse to buy Bitcoin unless it was mined from mm-hmm. renewable energy, for example. And would that therefore force changes in mining and force changes in various other acts? And would it create this problem of you know, fungibility for coins that, that didn't, right? These are just open questions. You know, it really, to me, comes back down to something that we actually don't talk about as often as we probably should, Michael, which is you know, this concept of purity tests, right? It's this idea that, you know, obviously the form factor is differentiated and matters. Okay. So whether you are self-custodying Bitcoin, whether you're holding an ETF, these are significantly different things. Yes, fine. Okay. However, there is an interesting question to be had about whether the, I don't want to say integration, that's probably too ambitious of a word, but the inclusion, let's call it, oh, that's a good word actually for a variety of reasons. The inclusion of some of these actors is net positive or net negative, or, or frankly, kind of net neutral, which is my personal opinion. It's kind of net neutral. And the reason I think that is because, look, I take everything you're saying about who's holding Bitcoin and where is it being held and is it getting centralized? All of that is important. However, I think you also have to kind of look at the fact that to me, this has always been about user choice. And the bottom line is, I'm just going to say this very bluntly and people will get mad at me, but if the user interface were easier, if it were easier to hold Bitcoin without going through something like an ETF, people would do that. And I think the Mm. Venn diagram of folks who are like self-custody or nothing and who are like ETF or nothing, there's zero overlap. It's not even a Venn diagram. It's like two circles that are miles apart, like universe Mm. apart, right? And so to me, it's a question of like, do those folks who maybe have a different risk appetite, who aren't as technically savvy, who are usually older, let's be frank, right? Different demographic. Do they not deserve access to engage with this asset? I would say no. I'd say absolutely they do. And if this Mm. is the form factor that makes sense to them, well, that's a combination. It's complicated. The reasons are not just because they're lazy or whatever. It's because there is a reason that folks are finding that option or alternative attractive and the other one or other, I'm not saying there's only one, two options, but you know, looking at the extremes of the spectrum, there's a reason people are kind of buying in or opting into this and not other options. And some of that's on industry. Got to be honest about that. So some of this, I think, is a little bit, you know, finger, what is it, hand waving and, you mm-hmm. know, a bit of, of, of drama created. And we're going to have to see how it plays out. Very true. And you know, I, I, it's not the first time I would have been wrong if I'm wrong about this. But my general take on this, it's, it's kind of net neutral. And look, look, I called this a watershed moment in the press for very specific reasons. But also, I think it's at the same time, kind of, eh. <laughs> I, I sort of landed sort of squarely on the fence. I, I don't, I didn't, like, yeah. I don't actually believe that it's necessarily going to lead to this shift. I think there is a bit of a a battle for Bitcoin soul, but there's always been a battle for Bitcoin soul, right? right? right. Um, and I think that's part of what makes it Bitcoin. It is a decentralized system of very dispersed. And and you, I love your point about inclusion, because the more inclusive Bitcoin becomes, 
the more robust it is, right? I mean, That's it's right. literally diversity. You can't have it both ways. Diversity right? and decentralization That's are, right. That's right. Uh, whether people like to admit it or not, like, you know, part of the same equation. This is what yeah. this, strength comes from a variety of inputs. And that's what decentralization is. You can't centralize control. So my sense is that, and it's just a mark of Bitcoin's success. Uh, and also for the reason why it is the only token that the SEC for now, at least feels comfortable approving and recognizing it's not a security unto itself is, um, is Bitcoin because it is sufficiently decentralized. It's become this big amorphous thing that is is really no one in charge. And I think that that should continue. I, I think that ultimately there's also that we've learned so many times when people have tried to make changes and take commandeer it and change, you know, everybody from Craig Wright through to, you know, um, the, the, the Bitmain guys. And there's, there's always been efforts to, to manipulate it. It's never worked because of the power of what this sort of uh, decentralized ecosystem is it's it's a it's literally an ecosystem it's 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 That's like right. it's, you can't break it down so my sense is yes it's net neutral ultimately but it is going to be additive to the voices and the participants who are involved in this well and look in the broader frame just zooming out a little bit that there's no question that this helps legitimize the engagement with the asset, right? It just helps legitimize Bitcoin specifically. But I, I also think crypto more generally. And there, I think opinions differ super widely. And, and certainly after Gary Gensler's, you know, uh, interesting, shall we say, you know, uh, statatement <laughs> about how, you know, I still hate Bitcoin or whatever, and all <laughs> the rest of this is nonsense. Don't, However, don't, don't do as to, I say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, it remains to be seen. But I, I actually think the halo effect, people are not paying that close of attention who are kind of like, as we call them industry normies are not paying that close of atten attention to the fact that this is Bitcoin, not Ethereum, not other things, you know, whatever. Yeah. They're just seeing there's now an ETF. It gives you access to, you know, a cryptocurrency. And that is kind of the meta point people are taking away and without the distinctions being relevant. So that's why I called it a watershed moment, because I do think that from the standpoint of narrative legitimacy, uh, this is a very big deal. Uh, from the standpoint of the market, to, again, I think we've landed on, we're kind of like, eh, you know. Well, the market is, spoken, has, has spoken. Yeah. It really has spoken. been this yeah, huge, there it big is. thing. There it I mean, you've also, I, I, in this week's column, I had a look at Google Trends and I just, you know, oh, what's happened to Google, Bitcoin searches. And, you know, it's it's at 50% of its peak from, you know, early 2021 when it was, the, when everybody and their dog was talking about Bitcoin, yeah. right? That was during the week yeah. of the approval. The following week, it's dropped down completely again. So yeah. it's going to yeah. take a time. I, I think that, Yes, it will be significant for the market as well because people will put it as one of their options in their you know allocations. Every every pay packet, there'll be a number of people who will be putting you know some small amount of Bitcoin and ETF into yeah. their IRA or their four hundred one k or whatever, and that that you know ongoing dollar cost averaging strategy is going to accumulate and it will have an impact, and that's yeah. that that will be there. It's it's gradual, right? I think that's the point. I think that's right. I also think that Bitcoin is sufficiently normalized in culture and society and, and the economy and, and other things that, you know, something will happen, there'll be a big spike in interest, and then it will go back to kind of, you know, baseline normal, right? And people aren't Googling gold all the time. But if suddenly there was like, a, mm. I don't know, like, discovery of some massive, you know, a gold mine or whatever, people would probably be like, ah, you know, for a few days, right? It's that similar. Would be, that'd be interesting. Right? Yeah. If the only that thing that really... Yeah 
Bitcoiners ever talked about is like whether or not it's time to buy it because you need a hedge against this or that, or you've got some political That's concern, right. as opposed to is it real? Is it a, is right. it a scam? Is it this? It's you know, now within yeah. context. It's within yeah, yeah, we are closer to that. Right. I think that's, what, that's why it is a watershed. You're absolutely right. So that's just right. very quickly, you know, of course, there is now the talk of the, you know, Ethereum, the ETH, right. uh, ETF. Um, I, I think this one's going to be a lot harder for the SEC personally. Because, <laughs> no I, mean, I mean, they haven't come down on whether they think it's a security or not. And then think it is, how are they going to, uh, how are they going to regulate it within the body of an ETF? I mean, it's going to be interesting to see people, if people put applications in. That is what I think is going to be interesting because I think well, there, there is, are there are some in right. Black there are some. That, well, yeah. if they continue if new folks yeah. do that in the wake of this, right? Yeah. There are some that predated this. Uh, there is a move in which people wait for the election, kind of see what happens in the administration, figure out what's going on at the agencies. You know, all, there, there's a move where people kind of game that out. I think the smart thing to do is just be in the game put in an application and see what happens. The question I think is going to be, is it going to require another lawsuit, another series of that kind of thing? And look, it, I, I will bring this up again because I'm a law nerd and I'm, I'm, I'm almost like contractually obligated by my you know Harvard Law School time to bring this up. But the reality is there's a much bigger thing happening in the legal world right now, which is a case about what's called Chevron deference. And I can go on all day about this, but what it means is how deferential are courts going to be to administrative agencies? Right. Decision of that case is going to be the single biggest thing that happens, period, in government, like period, but also wow. within the SEC battle, right? Because right. it's in question right now. I think I think it's well established. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial at this point that the SEC is really taking some pretty aggressive stances on things that um, very arguably stretch the boundaries of their domain and their jurisdiction, let alone their expertise. Like I think that's pretty well established at this point. You know, that being said. It's unclear how permitted they are to do that. And some of the arguments in, in court against it, against their stance on this, are this is just not within your authority to do. Like, you don't have the ability. Hmm. And the Chevron deference case would make that pretty final. Like, you do not have that authority. Judges get to decide, you know, kind of thing. So the outcome of that case, which was heard by the Supreme Court, uh, I believe, last week, um, is is critical. It's talked about mostly in the context of the environment, the EPA and other cases, yeah. because the initial case that established this this doctrine of Chevron deference came out you know, in a case that was about the environment. However, it has implications across all kinds of things. And in fact, when arguing this case, Paul Clement, who's the, the lawyer arguing about this, basically cited crypto as an example of administrative agency overreach, a uh, specific example yeah. of it. So like I say, all of that's going to come into the strategy around Ethereum ETFs, you know, w- what the deference needs to be, who gets to decide when things go. It's not as specific as that. It's not the outcome of that case is not going to determine whether an Ethereum ETFs goes to be very clear, but it's going to set a different potentially frame on the conversation as a general matter and what and what the SEC can and cannot do and how I think um dramatic, if you will, they're going to be in sort of their rejection, which I think is what we would expect, yeah. right? Or their stalling or their, you know, request for more information or whatever it looks like uh, in the first round of, of those applications. Yeah. I mean it yeah. The world is bigger than than these sort of people <laughs> right, who think right. they have ultimate power. Like, you know, we're all you yeah. know, at the mercy of... We're always in context. Process. It's a matter of how, how far are we zooming out to look at the context that we are all swimming in of the ocean. Indeed. All right. So on that note, why don't we wrap it up here? Thank you so yep. much for joining me. As always, Sheila, it was great fun hanging you in, with <laughs> yes. you in the Alps uh, last week as well. So nice to be able to do stuff together for a change in person. Uh, And thank you all of you for joining us. Uh, Do come again, come back again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. 
you can listen to us on the CD Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and drop us an email at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. We're back next week with another episode that is also crafted from some of the interviews we were doing uh, there in Davos. This one's more about uh, AI and the, you know, shifting digital framework for the world that we're going to have to uh, play around with and Web3's role in all of that. So uh, do come back for that. But thanks for joining us today. Bye for now. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com/internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the US to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement of the restrictions apply.